Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. He stood in their midst, walked by their side, taught them from the scriptures, and sat down at a table with them to break bread. These were the same disciples that abandoned him just a few days prior. These were the sheep that were scattered when the shepherd was stricken. These were the men who wrote their testimony down, a, humble, a humbling testimony of their own frailty and weaknesses. They could write this testimony because it was good news. They were forgiven. They were loved. Jesus still cared for them despite their sins because, after all, Jesus paid the penalty at the cross for all their sins. It's a reminder to us that no matter how frail or how weak, Jesus considers us his disciples. He stands with us. He walks with us. He teaches us. And he sits at a table to break bread and drink wine with us. He does this because he loves us. He died for us and was raised up on the third day for us. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Beginning in verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We'll turn now to Matthew chapter 23. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter into yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you, you make long prayers. Therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. 
And he who swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar." Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. We'll turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Please turn now to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 34, verses 1 through 10. Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we do draw near in full assurance of faith, having had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Now we come to hear from you We want to claim the confession and hold fast to it because it is our hope. So speak to us as your people this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When you think about the Gospel of John, it's different than the Synoptic Gospels. It contains some of the same information, but it's certainly a beloved gospel, and it's a gospel that has an introduction, and its conclusion is brief, just two verses, and it has an epilogue. Chapters 1 through 20 are the substance of the gospel of John. Chapter 21 is the epilogue epilogue of the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, there are signs. People calculate them a bit differently, but there are seven signs. And seven signs end with the sign of Jesus rising from the dead. Chapter 20 is all about the resurrection And uh, it's a garden story, and it matches up with chapter 2, which is a wedding story. In both chapters, Jesus addresses women named Mary, but he calls them woman. In each of these two chapters, we're looking at some kind of bookends to the book. The first is the wedding in Cana of Galilee. The second is at the tomb where Mary is asking the angels, where have they laid my Lord? These two angels, one at the head and one at the foot where Jesus lay, thus giving us a picture of the holy room and the Ark of the Covenant with an angel on each end. 
And so we're to think that way. And then she turns and she sees a man. And she supposes him to be the gardener. And so she asks the gardener, where have you laid Jesus, my Lord? And Jesus says to her, Mary. And suddenly she recognizes him. Of course, that takes us back to John chapter 10, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And the voice of another they simply will not listen to. These are bookends. Mary rushes off to tell the disciples. And then we come to the story that we read in the scripture reading in chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. We've uh, looked a lot over past years around Resurrection Sunday at John chapter 20 because it's one of the favorites of mine. We've looked at other Gospels also as well. But we should be very familiar with John 20. But we generally don't look at the little section where Thomas is lacking. And that's what I want to do this morning. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. And Jesus comes into a room that has closed doors where the disciples are gathered for fear of the Jews. And he's going to make a second appearance when Thomas is with them and the doors are closed. Again, I assume for fear of the Jews. But we're told the doors are closed, and we make a lot about that because Jesus comes through the doors without opening them. And it says something about his resurrection body, no doubt. But I don't think that's the point. The doors are closed for fear of the Jews. But the doors are where Jesus meets with his disciples in the inner room. And so he says, peace be with you. And he shows his hands and his side, and they're rejoicing. And again, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And then he breathes on them. And they receive the Spirit. And he says to them, the sins of those you remit, they're remitted. The sins of those you retain, they're retained. Now, I said in my little note that I sent out that I was going to talk about uh, the resurrection or John from the standpoint of the message of the book, from the standpoint of new creation, and from the standpoint of the disciples being witnesses. Well, these three themes are all tied together in John, but we'll talk about them a bit separately. But you can see right away, if you work your way through John, and you go all the way from the beginning to here in John 20, we start at John chapter 1, and we hear the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God he was with God in the beginning. All things were made by him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So over here at the start, we have creation. And when you think of creation, of course, this ties into our text, 
it sends you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we work our way through the days of creation, and then we come to the sixth day of creation, and after the land animals are created, then man is created. Chapter 2 is an explanation about that creation, a second creation story focused on man. But in chapter 1, on the sixth day, after God makes man in his own image, in the image of God, created he him male and female he created them thus being made in the image of God he says to them he says God blessed them and God said be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take dominion now John chapter 1 starts with creation and we come all the way down to the beginning of a new creation. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus appears to the messenger of the church at Laodicea, I should say, speaks to him and says, I am the beginning of the creation. Colossians chapter 1 tells us he is the firstborn from the dead. This is where new creation starts. And what does he do? Well, he does something very much like what happened in Genesis chapter 1. He says to Adam and Eve, I bless you. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He says to the disciples, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Adam and Eve were tasked with producing a progeny to fill the earth and take dominion of it. These men are tasked with going out the closed doors they will open, first to Jerusalem, then into Judea, then Samaria, then to the uttermost part of the earth, the land. They're going to go throughout the world, and of course, it's the same picture. It's creating a progeny. They're going to bring people to Christ, who are going to be in a new generation, who are going to bring people to Christ, who are going to be in a new generation and bring people to Christ, who are going to be in a new generation and bring people to Christ, until the earth is full of the glory of the Lord. That's what happens, but Thomas is lacking. He's not there. And in verse 24 of chapter 20, it says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, now, the truth of the matter is the other disciples weren't any different. We call Thomas doubting. 
But you recall, Jesus, in three different occasions in the Synoptic Gospels, tells the disciples what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be delivered up to the Gentiles, and they're going to crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised. But it made no sense to them. It doesn't make any sense to Thomas. Thomas isn't there, but when Jesus appears to the twelve, a twelve is just a name for the group, he shows them his hands and his side. They saw too. Thomas wasn't there, and he says, if I, don't, if I can't do this, I simply will not believe. And so you see in verse 26, and after eight days, now in the way we count in Hebrew reckoning then, the first day of the week is one, and then you go all the way through Saturday, and the next first day of the week is number eight. So it's from Sunday to Sunday. So on resurrection day, Jesus appeared to the 12 minus Thomas and Judas. And then one week later, on the first day of the week, Jesus shows up again, and he appears to Thomas. And after eight days, again, his disciples were were inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your fingers and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. The word believe in the Gospel of John is always a verb. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing. So, I don't know if Thomas touched Jesus or not. We're not really told. It seems as if seeing was enough for him. And so Thomas makes this great exclamation. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Well, if we took these two words and we put them back into the Old Testament and we're translating the Hebrew, it would be my Yahweh, my God. Except at some point in the the history of the Jewish nation, they decided they wouldn't say Yahweh anymore. And so they substituted a reading for what you would see in the Hebrew, Y-H-W-H. They substituted the reading Adonai, which means my master. And if you get a Hebrew text and you can read it and you look at the bottom, it has Kativ Kare. It says, this is what's written, but read this. So read Adonai instead of reading Yahweh. But God's name is Yahweh. And Thomas says, my Lord, which could be stated, my master and my God. Well, that's a, that's a great statement. If we make such a statement, which I'm sure hope everybody in this room would make my master that means oh yeah we're willing to do what jesus says he's our master we'll do what he says 
And my God is saying, well, we recognize he's the God of the universe and he's my God, he's God over me. But what everyone falls to is verse 29. Jesus said to him, in the New American Standard, it says, because you have seen, have you believed? But it's not a question. Because you've seen, you've believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Now, when it comes to how many saw Jesus after his resurrection, we know the disciples saw him. We know a crowd of 500 people saw him. Twelve were chosen to be particular witnesses. From the time of John the Baptist to his resurrection, they were with him. They saw it. They could witness to it. When you come to the book of Acts, they are witnesses. We think of witnesses as the proclamation of the gospel. So it is, but particularly in the book of Acts, the witness is the witness to his resurrection. Nobody in this room can witness to his resurrection. You didn't see it. You weren't there. We're not witnesses in that way. Twelve were especially appointed. It's pointed out numerous times in the book of Acts. We're witnesses of his resurrection. Twelve were selected, we're told in Acts chapter 10, to witness to his resurrection. We're not witnesses in that sense. But Thomas was. And just like the disciples, he had to see Jesus or he couldn't be that kind of witness. Paul is also a witness of the resurrection of Jesus because he saw him on the road to Damascus. He appeared to Paul and he saw him on a couple other occasions and he's made an apostle. But here are the 12 over here who are apostles to the Jews and here's Paul over here, who's the apostle to the Gentiles. So you know when you come to the Gospel of John, it's written by John. He's an apostle to the Jewish people, so it's written to Jewish people. And uh, I'd like to take you through a study to prove that, but nevertheless, that is the case. It's written to Jewish people. So Thomas sees, and Jesus, and makes his explanation, and Jesus says, well, because you've seen, you believe. And here's the word to you and me. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Now, in the Greek, you have two words for bless. It's the same in the Hebrew. In the Greek, you have the word makarios. It's the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. It's, it's the word that's used right here. And when Jesus, and most people translate that something like happy. You're happy. And of course, Thomas was elated. Here's Jesus risen. And you know, you can just hear the wheels turning. What all does this mean? This is incredible. Jesus is risen. And is he happy? Absolutely he's happy. But there's another word for blessed, to 
to bless in the Greek, and it's the word from what we, what we get, the word eulogy. Eulogia. It's a little prefix that means good, and it's the word to speak, or the word logos, which means to speak good. And if you look it up in a lexicon, it will, it will say to say good things. But most often in the New Testament, it's translated blessed. So you could think of different places where this word is. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All of that is not this word that people think means happy, but the word that means to say good things. So God does the blessing. So you think, for example, of Numbers chapter 6. In Numbers chapter 6, at the end, there is an, a blessing that the priestly line invoked upon the people of Israel. God told them to do it. And the word blessed is used. In the Hebrew, you have the word barak, which matches up with ulogia, and you have the word asher, which matches up with the word blessed in the Beatitudes. Asher means happy. That's why Leah named her son Asher. She said, I'm happy and women will call me happy. So his name's Asher. It's the word that's used in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly and so forth. That man's happy. Here in John, the word that's used of Thomas is the word that can be translated happy. Well, I want you to realize something, and I'm sure you know this, so maybe I'm just wasting my time. I'm sure you know this. When God blesses and he says a word, a good word, God blesses his people, he invokes his name, or the, men, the priests invoke God's name on the people. And the, the word in, invoke in Numbers chapter 6, invoke my name upon the people, is the word to place. So you take a person and you stamp him with God's name. How do you do that? May the Lord bless you. And the word bless is God saying something good. And of course, we know that God is the kind of God the omnipotent God, that when he speaks, what he says happens. Let there be light, there's light. Let there be a firmament between the waters above, and the, there it is, it happens. So when the priests raise their hands and they're calling down God's name upon his people, and they bless, God's blessing them. Good things are going to happen. That's what God does. So we say, blessed be God. We use the same word. But we don't make anything happen. We're just saying, oh, let's say good things about God because God blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So God speaks, he blesses us, 
and boom, it happens. And when God blesses us, we are blessed. We're happy. That's how the two words go together. So, for example, when in, the, in, in creation, God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. It's the word that means God spoke to them and this is what happened. It seems it's the season for marriage. So we just need to think about that verse a little bit. I'm uh, counseling two different couples at the moment who are getting married. And uh, I was talking with, with uh, Kevin and Evelyn yesterday. What a delightful couple. We were talking about Eve being taken out of the side of Adam. And I said to Evelyn, it's a good thing you don't have to be taken out of Kevin's side. He's so skinny, nothing can come out of him. <laughs> God blessed Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were a happy couple. God opened Thomas's eyes, and Thomas was happy. Now, Make no mistake, Thomas didn't get happy on his own. God first had to do something, which he's done for, I hope, all of us in this room. He's opened our eyes, and we recognize who he is. He spoke a word, and we become a new creation. And as a new creation, then we move over into the category of the blessed. That's what happened to Thomas. And just imagine, you got to step back and think. I mean, here they've been walking around with Jesus for three and a half years, and suddenly he's hung up on a cross and crucified, and they're afraid, and they run, and they don't understand. And now they come together, and they see the risen Christ, and they're so happy and they begin to think about all the implications. That's the way all of us should be. Because in this room, if you believe that Jesus died according to the scriptures, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. How raised? Well, Jesus said, I have authority to lay my life down, and I have authority to take it again. This commandment I have from my Father. God is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So all that God does, all of God does the work. So it's true. Jesus handed over his own life. And Jesus picked it up again. If you believe that Jesus died according to the scriptures and he was buried 
and he rose the third day, according to the scriptures, then what you believe is that Jesus had a physical body and he died. And on the third day, that physical body transformed into a glorified body came forth with physical life. If you don't believe that, you don't believe the scriptures. If you believe that, it's because God's opened your eyes to believe it, and you should be happy. Blessed are those who did not see and believe. Happy are those who did not see and yet believe. That's you and me. That is the message of the Gospel of John. You go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. So, chapter 1, God. Chapter 20, right at the end of the book, Thomas says, My Yahweh and my God. That's the message of John. Look down at your text then in verse 20 and verse 30. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe. I'm going to change the word order to fit the Greek. That you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. And believing, you might have life in his name. So, the Christ is the anointed one. Going back to the Old Testament, the Messiah, the Son of God, is the King in the Old Testament. Thou art my Son, today I've begotten you. It's along the Davidic covenant line. In John, you discover, as you're working your way through and you get to the end, this Son of God, which Solomon was a Son of God, and Rehoboam was a Son of God, and uh, all of them were sons of God. And then along comes another human being, Jesus Christ, and he too, in the same fashion. Thou art my beloved son. He is the son of God, like Solomon was, like Rehoboam was. But as you go through John, you discover something more. He's not simply human. He's also divine. That's what Thomas is saying my Lord, my Yahweh, my Master, and my God. And so what John says is, okay, I've put all these signs down for this purpose. There are all kinds of signs that Jesus did. They point to who he is. They point to fulfillment of the Old Testament. They point to all of this. There are all kinds of them in chapter 21. There's so many things that I guess you couldn't write them all down. The heavens couldn't contain them. But these are written that you 
That is, the people he's writing to. That is, the people who didn't see Jesus risen from the dead. That is, you and me who haven't seen. He writes these down that we might believe that the anointed one, the king, the son of God, is Jesus, and that believing you might have life in his name. Now, let me just quickly add, and you know this, that life in the book of John is eternal life. And I insist that you think about eternal life differently than you maybe have been thinking about eternal life. Eternal life is a gift. You get it because you're a new creation. Jesus is the beginning of the creation. And when you come to believe that Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried and rose the third day according to the scriptures, you get new life, creation life in Jesus. And we think, okay, I got the gift and eternal life means I'll live forever. It does mean that, but that's not its primary meaning. Because the word eternal is the word age, an eon. There are two biblical eons, and out beyond them, there are the ages to come. One age is the Jewish age. It runs, just for our purposes, we'll say from creation all the way down to A.D. 70. But the Messianic age starts at 30 A.D. and runs all the way down until Jesus raises the dead, puts death, so death is no more, and hands the kingdom over to the Father. So there are a 40-year span where these two eons are running together. And when Jesus says eternal life or life, you'll have life and you'll have it more abundantly. This is eternal life that you might know the only God and his son, Jesus Christ. What is eternal life? Eternal life is life that belongs to this new age. It's not just length. It's quality. It's happiness. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. So the message of John has these two bookends. In the beginning was the Word, and words was God, and the Word was God. And my Lord and my God. And then John tells us, this is why this is recorded, so that you readers, so that you 21st century people who didn't see Jesus rise from the dead, you haven't seen him in bodily form. No. That you might look at these signs and you might believe that the anointed one, the king, the son of God is Jesus and that believing, whoa, you might have life. Now, let me just add one more thing. When Jesus says to Thomas, be not unbelieving, but believing, he's not talking about unbelieving in the way you and I think of an unbeliever because Thomas and the other disciples They believed in one God, Yahweh God. They believed in the Old Testament. They believed the scriptures. No, they're in a 
what we call a transition period. And in this transition, one moves from Judaism into Christianity. One moves from one age into a new age. That's what's happening. So Thomas, to move into the new age, he's a believer in the old age. Now he's got to come into the new age and believe what? Ah, Jesus was raised from the dead. Makes him a happy man. All right, now I want to say something just about the structure of John. Because what you're looking at here is the beginning of a new creation. And the structure of John is a chiasm, a heptamerous chiasm. And I know some of you are sick and tired of the word, and I haven't said it in a long time, that phrase. That, we probably said it a million times when we studied Revelation, and people, you know, oh, yuck, you know, heptamerous chiasm. But I got to tell you, one nice lady in our congregation got it, because one day she showed up with a bag for me. And in this bag were seven jars of olives. She knows I like olives. And she said, chiasm. <laughs> then another, I don't know, down the road somewhere, she came with another bag. It had some larger jars of olives in it. And there were three. She said, I bought you four. But Mark Fossilino opened the first one and started eating them. <laughs> so I think four stood for the four corners of the earth. And it went down to three, so I'm not quite sure what that stood for. <laughs> so there's this, this chiasm. And uh, I, I, we don't have time to talk about it fully, but you can just think your way through the signs from wine, I mean water into wine, all the way down to death into life. And you can see that those two go together. And then when you move in from there, you have the official's son who was sick, about to die, and Jesus heals him. And you move down to this side, on the B side, and you have Lazarus, who had actually died. In fact, Jesus waited until he died before he went to see Martha and Mary, and he raised them. Those two go together. And then you move in towards the center, and you have the lame man who's healed, and on the other side, the blind man who sees. Now, notice, right in the middle is Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water. So the point of the signs, remember the outside is the base that builds us, and the center is the focus. Now, don't misunderstand me. Resurrection is a focus in the Gospel of John. And we see, when we look at the two ends of the chiasm, that this is all about creation. You have a garden-like story of a wedding where uh, water is turned into wine and you take the water uh, of uh, Jewish purification pots and you turn it into something new because Judaism is dead. It's dying under Christ. It is no more. So you got to take that old system 
And you have to turn that old system into something new. And that's exactly what happens as you work your way through the Gospel of John. And then you get to John chapter 20, and you have another garden scene. So you, you get pictures like creation. That's why I say when you, when you come to the end, you're looking at a new creation. And right smack dab in the middle, we could talk about all these. And by the way, each of these matches up with the day of creation back in Genesis chapter 1. You can try to figure that out. Each matches up with the day of creation. But right in the center is Jesus feeding uh, the 5,000 plus women and children and then walking on water. What does it picture? Well, he fed the 5,000. They picked up 12 baskets full, showing that he has sufficiency for Israel. But now we're talking about a new Israel. And so it's like going out into the wilderness after escaping from Egypt, redemption from Egypt, and you come out into the wilderness. And what does God do out there in the wilderness for 38 years? 40 years. He supplies everything Israel needs. And he says in John 6, I'm the manna who came down from heaven. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And then he sends the people away and the men are out in the boat and the storm comes up and he starts walking on water and he scares them. They think it's a ghost. Then he says, no, it's me. And you know that whole story. What is all of that telling us? It's telling us about something about Jesus. He's going to take care of the new Israel and just as they walked through the wilderness for 40 years and they came to the banks of the Jordan River and the river split apart when the priests carrying the ark stuck their feet in the water and they walked right into the promised land. So Jesus is telling his disciples, look, I'm going to take care of the new Israel. I'll feed them with my flesh and my blood, and I will walk them into the promised land. That's the picture. But it all comes back to the very end of the book. I guess I should be over here for the end of the book. The very end of the book, get mixed up. All comes back to the very end of the book in resurrection. Friends, this is our life, resurrection. We have the most fabulous future, resurrection. We live completely different from the world. Why? Because of the resurrection. We have the life of the new age. Why? Because of the resurrection. We have new age life, new creatures in Christ, old things past, behold, new things have come. 
God blessed us, and we've been blessed. God spoke, and we believed. We believed, and we were blessed. Now, we're supposed to be happy people, blessed people, like Thomas, who went into that room skeptical and said, how can I believe in resurrection? Who could believe in resurrection? It's inconceivable. It's incredible. Anybody in their right mind would not believe in resurrection. You ever seen anybody raised? You ever stood by a grave and there, you know, your loved one's buried and the next day you see them alive? No, you've never seen any of that. These disciples are not fools. They're just like you and me. They had to see, and they did see, and they're the witnesses to you and me. And what they've done is they've invoked the name of Jesus onto us. And now we're blessed. His name's been put on us. How's it done? Well, you come to faith in Christ. You get a little water. And somebody says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus' name is on you. We ought to be the happiest people in all the world with all the misery that's around us. We could go over to Ukraine and we could work in those cities that are being bombarded trying to help people and share. No, let me change that. Be Jesus to them. We could do that and die and we'd be good, wouldn't we? That's what Thomas saw. That's what Thomas understood. Oh, look, see, new life. The Gospel of John is about a new creation. In the beginning, and then you come to 1 John, from the beginning, what we heard, what we saw, what we handled with our hands, eternal life. The life we we share it with you. Stand with me. Father, we thank you that for our sakes you chose 12 men one had to be replaced, but all 12 of them were with you from your baptism to your resurrection. And they saw you. They saw you risen. They saw the damage to your hands. They saw the hole in your side. They touched your hands with their fingers. They stuck their hand into your side. They heard you speak. As it says in Acts, they ate and drank with you during that 40-day period. And then you used them to spread the gospel and to write down the words that we look at today.
And now you use those words because you bless from heaven. And what you say comes to pass. And you've spoken over each of us. You shall believe and we have. And you've put your name on us in baptism so that we walk around as uh, kids of the kingdom. Your kids. Now help us to be people who rejoice, who are happy, who think of life differently, who don't look at it the same way the lost people look at it, but we look at it, you know, we have nothing to lose, everything to gain. We thank you for our Savior who had authority to lay his life down by your commandment and the authority to take it up again by your commandment. And so he did, and so we serve not simply a risen Savior, but we serve a risen Savior King who is all-sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, who can deal with anything we bring to him and who loves us. We thank you that you've blessed us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.